Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. Hello everyone and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. My name is Troy and sitting right next to me in the virtual space is my dear friend Brian McDowell and we together host this podcast. How are you, Brian? I'm very good. That, that was a really nice introduction. Like I felt it was quite official compared to our, our normal introductions. Well, yeah. And do you remember at the beginning of the season, I actually sang Season four. Every time I hear that now, when I go back and listen to that episode, I'm like, oh, that's embarrassing. No, it's great. And I actually read the transcript of that um, that episode and the person who transcribes for us wrote it beautifully. It was almost operatic. I, I felt the words bounce out of the page operatically. Oh, how lovely. Is, is that a word? Operatically? It is now. It is now. That's right. <laughs> it is on our podcast. Well, Brian, why don't you introduce our guest? Let's get straight into it because people tell me they hate it when we go on with shite. So let's jump straight into it. Yeah, look, sorry, we sometimes we do go on with shite, but deal with it. Today, we've got Shane Clifton. And Shane Clifton, when I open up his web webpage, I connect instantly because Shane is a whiskey drinker. And I do love a very good whiskey, and I am a slight whiskey snob. So, Shane, that is our definitely our connection straight off the bat. But also, I think today's conversation is going to be incredible. Like Shane describes himself as an, an ex-theologian, an ethicist, and a disabled scholar. And when we say disabled scholar, Shane had a spinal injury in 2010, which left him with quadriplegia. But Shane's an academic, and he's still an academic at the University of, of Sydney. He is going to talk to us today about many, many different parts of his life, which he he has an amazing story, and we really want to unpack it because it has so many intersections, I think, with so many of our past guests. So we'd like to welcome you, Shane Clifton, to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Thank you, Brian, and uh, Troy, it's great to be here. Uh I've been listening to your podcast recently, loving it. Uh, we've obviously got common histories and common experiences, so it's great to join you in conversation. And yes, whiskey is one of the great pleasures in life, and the church can often be anti-pleasure, can't it? So um, it's good to find something significant like quality whiskey. 
in my version of the Bible, Jesus would have turned wine into whiskey. So I'm completely comfortable with it. Do you remember that old joke they used to tell back in the day? It was that uh, Jesus turned the water into wine and then for the last 200 years, the evangelicals have been trying to turn it back into water again? I didn't hear that joke because it's not funny. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll edit that one out. (laughs) Thanks very much. So anyway, Shane, let's talk about you. We normally start by asking people, were you a teenage fundamentalist? And if so, if not, that's cool. But tell us your story. How did you come into Pentecostalism? Well, Troy, I was a teenage fundamentalist. So there you go. Yes, I grew up uh, in a agnostic uh, family, Dutch background. So pretty atheist, really. My grandparents were sort of turned off God by the war, but When I was a teenager, my family joined a Pentecostal church. So at age 16, I got saved uh, to use the Pentecostal language into a pretty wild Pentecostal church, actually. I can remember when I was 16, Mad Dog Mumford actually driving his motorbike right up the um, the aisle of the church that we were in, in a country town called Nara. He He would have been a lot younger then than he is now like me. Uh, that was 30 or more years ago. And uh, so it was a pretty crazy, wild Pentecostal church. And uh, yeah, that was what I got saved into. And I met a girl, of course, and that's what kept me there. In fact, I uh, started dating my, my, the girl who was going to become my wife. So in fact, of course, you can't have sex when you're a teenage fundamentalist. So we were married at 19 and ours was one of those married, young marriages that lasted because we're still together 33 years later. Yeah, it's interesting that you were a teenage fundamentalist, and that pretty much indicates that you could, in fact, be a teenage married fundamentalist. Or for Brian and I, it was, it was in our 20s. That's certainly not an unusual story. So tell us more. Tell us more about who you are and, and what you do and, and, and I guess even how you got to where you are today because there's so many... So many touch points that I think we're going to be really interested to dive into. Grew up in the South Coast, was a surfer, surfing bum, and moved to Sydney to work for a evil accounting firm, Pricewaterhouse. My wife and I got married at 19, as I said, and I felt the call of God uh, to go to Bible college when I was about 25. So I left Pricewaterhouse and went to Bible college, and I did um, you know, I was one of those relatively smart people, did well at college, kept studying. And so I ended up doing a PhD with the Australian Catholic University. I was employed as a lecturer at a, a Pentecostal college in Sydney. In 2010, I had a spinal cord injury, as you mentioned. And so I was, had to sort of think about how disability also Im- impacted upon my faith. And then I went through a crisis where I was really kicked out of Pentecostalism in 2018. You know, in essence, I was pro-gay and so that became an issue. And since then, I was working with the University of Sydney in disability theology, in disability ethics. And right now, I actually work with the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability. I should say, um, for your American listeners, the Royal Commission, that's a bit weird. We are a colonial country in Australia. We are headed by the King of England, which is an absurd thing. So when they do national investigations into major issues in Australia, they call it a Royal Commission. 
And so we're looking at um, violence in uh, and neglect of people with disability. So that's a broad brushstroke overview of my life. I've got three children now grown up. My um, oldest is uh, transitioning right now, a transgender uh, woman. And so obviously that has certain resonances with the things you're, investigation, you're investigating and, and considering in fundamentalist Christianity. So there you go, a really broad overview of my weird life. It's a huge life, and it's it's where where do we start? Which bits would we dive into? Because all of those are just incredibly meaty. But you were saying you're an academic, so it's sort of winding back a little bit. Yeah, obviously you're very passionate about Christianity. You wanted to teach others and bring others into a space where they were able to critically think about this. Although Pentecostalism, I think, and critical thinking are in opposition, but happy to dive into that and debate that a bit. But what happened there? How did you get into to academia in a Christian sense? Because I said I felt that call of God. I think one of the things about conservative Christianity is that it's pretty common for people to feel like the only way to truly live the Christian life is to serve God in some full-time capacity, whether that's you know, as a minister or a teacher or a missionary or something like that. So, so I felt that sort of call. And for me, that meant going to Bible college. It was an interesting choice at the time because my original plan was I was, I'd moved to Sydney from the South Coast was to go back and work with my dad uh, on the South Coast as an accountant and spend my days surfing, my weekend surfing. So I sacrificed that and went to Bible college in Sydney. And I guess, I should add, by the way, the time I felt called to go to Bible college was in the middle of the Toronto Blessing, um, that weird 90s spiritual movement that I'm sure you guys have touched on, so we don't have to go there again. But I went to Bible college, and I guess for me, that was the point that started to help me actually out of fundamentalism. Um, study became my way out, and so... You know, many of those things that I just presumed to be true, such as, you know, male headship and um, God is anti-gay, it was really in the experience of study that helped me there. So I pretty quickly discovered that the Bible actually uh, doesn't support male headship. I studied, first of all, at a Pentecostal college, but then I did ecumenical studies. So I went to a uniting college and did a PhD through the Australian Catholic University. And that really expanded my horizons and gave me a deeper sort of insight into the breadth and diversity of Christian theology. I think the problem with fundamentalism is it tends to have this idea that there's one fixed truth. And of course, that's the truth that the fundamentalist is telling you. So yeah, uh, studying really opened my horizons. And, uh, and I, got to, I got employed at a theological college and got to teach young people and be involved in expanding horizons. And it was a great profession. Being a theology and ethics teacher was a great joy because I got to talk to young, passionate people uh, about life and God and its meanings, and I got to expand people's horizons. Um, I was able, for example, to spend a lot of years teaching young people at Hillsong, interestingly enough. I was, Hillsong ran a degree program, so I didn't work for Hillsong per se, 
but they ran a degree program and I was brought in as a teacher in their master and postgrad degree. And for all of the problems of Hillsong that we're seeing now that were then there, they were full of young, passionate, amazing people who were bright and sharp and and wanted to explore life and what it means to be human. And so I really enjoyed the profession. Shane, can I take you back a little bit? Because there's so much there genuinely that I want to jump in and unpack. But I want you to take me back to when you felt the call of God to go to Bible college. You say it was during the Toronto blessing, and that is something that Brian and I love because we take two different, well, we took two different, very, uh, very different viewpoints to it at the time. I embraced it and Brian totally rejected it. But did you have a an oh my God, wow sense of I must go to Bible college in the midst of this, or it just happened to be around that time? Oh gosh, that's so hard to look back and interpret what was motivating you um, when you're in the middle of these environments, isn't it? I felt at the time that I had a wow God take me away. But look, I was always, I was a cerebral Pentecostal. And so in the midst of this absurd experiences where people are falling around about me, laughing their head off. I was the one guy who stood up the whole time. It did mean that I got more prayer than anyone else. When you were the person not falling over, my gosh, they kept coming back to you and trying to push you and I was refusing to be pushed. And so I half wonder in retrospect, was my call a clear sort of call of the spirit to go to Bible college? Was it socialized pressure because I was the one not falling down. Who knows? It's hard to know this far down the track what was motivating me. So I do know I didn't embrace it wholly. I was suspicious even in the midst of it. And Bible college actually gave me a way of critis- uh, of sort of critically standing on the outside of it. Bible college was interesting, by the way, because uh, this college had academics who were suspicious and but also some pastoral ministers, some Pentecostal ministers there who were right into it. So we were in the middle of Bible college and they'd have these crazy Toronto blessing, laughing, shouting meetings with um, a sort of a split down the middle where some academics were sitting there shaking their heads and some pastors are trying to urge us right into it. So it was the strangest time, wasn't it, for Pentecostal Christianity? And and I guess that's something I want to tap into a little bit, Shane. I, I was actually at Bible College in the middle of of Toronto, and I had a lecturer who was very very similar to you. He was very cerebral. He was critical around this stuff. Yet we saw a bit of a change in him, and he, even though he was critical of it, he did throw himself into it. And I always wondered at the time because, as Troy said, I pushed away from it. That was one of the critical moments in yeah, my... Yeah, Brian had no faith. I had <laughs> zero faith. Um, that that was one of the critical moments of my deconversion and deconstruction where I went, I'm calling bullshit on this. And I always wondered with the academics, like what was happening there? So it sounds like you were really in the middle of that, of going, because Pentecostalism, you know, it's famous for let go and let God and just just believe it, just accept it. What's happening in the midst of that for you, but also your colleagues, your academic colleagues? Yeah, look, I think, look, I think because we're in an environment and we want the spirit to move, we are trying to open our hearts and our minds to this experience. But to be honest with you, um, 
yeah, it ended up just um, really annoying me and I thought it was pretty abhorrent and disgusting. And I feel like the the preachers who were pushing it, uh, your Rodney Howard Browns, they their version of Christianity was just really bad. Their reading of the scriptures was terrible. Their actions were absurd. And so for me, I pushed away from it and many of my academic colleagues pushed away from it. But uh, in my case, not out of faith, but uh, toward deeper versions of faith. So it 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 uh, led me to studying the scriptures more um, and led me into theology. And so I guess I found my out um, in a different way to you there. Yeah, and got to read the Christian tradition and see that actually um, there is a lot more depth and riches to this Christian tradition than was evident in my Pentecostal background. Do you blame the Pentecostals, though, the Pentecostals of the 90s embracing Toronto? Because when you look at the stories or you read the stories of Azusa Street, it's very similar. It seems to me that the movement was birthed this way. And so there must have been an affinity. There must have been a resonance for them to say, well, this is what we were told the glory looks like. Yeah, I think it is very Pentecostal. You note, by the way, guys, we're right now um, there's another revival at Aberdeen University. Have you noticed that? So there is this constant sort of impetus to go back to that early Pentecostalism. Yeah, look, what is Pentecostalism? It's one of those great, great questions. And I ended up becoming, becoming a Pentecostal theologian, which is sort of weird, but it was my way of trying to analyze the history of Pentecostalism and trying to find the essence of it. And so for me, Pentecostalism, part of its beauty is that it embraces this strange, open uh, spirituality, and it tends to draw people on the margins. So when I look at that history, I'm seeing that it was, you know, it was the poor whites and it was the African-Americans in Australia. Pentecostal revivals with all of their weirdness were predominantly women. And so in Australia, the, the movement for the first 20 or 30 years was headed by a woman called Sarah Jane Lancaster. 50% of churches in Australia were planted and led by women. So this sort of radical, crazy spirituality that's not driven by doctrine and fixed theology, I think is part of its strength and part of its weakness because it can also be strange and weird. Yeah, I've, I've heard some writers talk about that, that the, the essence of Pentecostalism being this really grassroots, organic sort of expression was lost when they started to pursue credibility and, you know, engaged more with sort of broader evangelicalism and, you know, were, were influenced by conservative evangelicalism, which tends to be sort of very biblicist. So I, I, I hear you and, and I, I hear exactly what you're saying. On that note, though, tell us about what it was like for you as an academic with the movement. You're in the Assemblies of God in Australia. Was there a tension that with the leadership where you were saying, oh, Here's, here's what our theology says, or here's what my study says, and yet the movement is pushing things that are indicative of the movement. Yeah, look, uh, absolutely. It's hard to be a Pentecostal academic. There's no doubt about that. Uh, to some degree, we got our community of scholars by Pentecostal academics around the world, and there is some really open-minded, fantastic Pentecostal scholars around the world, but it was hard to be yeah, to be an academic in a movement that did not value that and didn't value critical thinking. And over time, 
for me, that became very difficult. Now, in part, that's because my study led me to think very differently to what the movement started to think. And so you sort of sit in this really difficult space where, you know, as I said, I became very um, feminist. So I was a strong pusher of feminist. Uh, One of the great joys I had was taking conservative classes, first year classes, and spending a year really advocating that the Bible, but also Pentecostalism is a feminist form of spirituality. And I should say that was never really a major conflict with the movement. I think when you compare Pentecostalism to Catholicism or Sydney Anglicanism or many of the sort of evangelical movements today, I would say one of its great strengths is that it can be, not always, but it can be very pro, um, pro-women. And it's conservative even, just I've got the shakes here, guys, my spinal cord injury is causing some wobbles, but hopefully that's not affecting the sound. Just give me a second. It's making it difficult to talk. Sorry, spinal cord injury affects my body. Um, You're right, mate. It, it's totally fine. You take your time. <laughs> so it was one of one of the great joys, and that was less of a problem. But in about two thousand and four and five, I also became pro gay, and actually uh, through encounter with one of your former guests, Anthony Van Brown. So Anthony and I have been friends since two thousand and four. I read his book. A Life of Unlearning, and went and met Anthony and for my ethics class actually recorded an interview of Anthony and, an, and another guy called Ron Brockman who was a conservative. And it was a really interesting time for me because I found the conservative argument so unconvincing and Anthony's argument. And it really forced me to reevaluate my attitude to sexuality. So I was a increasingly a radical feminist, pro-gay, although I had to be careful, but also just critical of the movement. My PhD was in ecclesiology, big words, study of the church, theology of the church. You know, we had um, some challenges with that from the very beginning. That actually affected us personally. So in 2008, the little um, Pentecostal church that we were going to got taken over by a mega church. And, uh, you know, the sort of um, the capitalist expansion of Pentecostal Christianity, the, the local mega church took us over. We weren't very happy about it. The weekend they took it over, I decided, look, I just, I can't stomach this and decided not to go to church. But my wife went to church. The guy is announcing the pastor then, by the way, the pastor then was a guy called John McMartin. So it was Liverpool CLC. I don't know whether you've done anything on John McMartin in this podcast. No, although he was a a witness at the Brian Houston trial at the same time as being a defendant in his own trial. That's correct. And my understanding is that he's been found guilty um, sexual assault. That's my understanding. We need to do a podcast. You guys need to do a podcast on that later. But anyway, so this that John McMartin was the head of the the mega church that uh, took over our my wife's church and or our church. And in the middle of the service, he's talking about how the Holy Spirit has led him to to become the pastor of this church. Of course, he appointed his son, as they do nepotism. You've done that there. And my wife stood up in the middle of the service, and this doesn't happen, and just said, "It's not the Holy Spirit." It's you doing this because you're interested in power. And honestly, the shit hit the fan because I was working at the national, I should, well, I was working at, a, at, a, at the, a major theological college. I'm not wanting to actually name that college, by the way. 
it's because I really value the college. I value the staff. I worked there for a good while of people. I think they're great people. And my critique is more with the movement than with the college. So I sort of want to keep it out of the story if I can. The, sh- the shit hit the fan for me. And you can imagine he called me into his office and um, the the next day and um, I said to him, oh, what are you... That's never good, by the way. When the pastor calls you in on a Monday, never good. <laughs> that's right. They don't work on a Monday. And that's when I got called in. Uh, by the way, he rang, he rang the national executive of the movement and rang my boss at the Bible College. So I was in a bit of trouble. Called me in and I said to him, what are you talking to me for? I wasn't even in the church. It was my wife. And uh, his response was, well, you're the head of the home and there's no way I would have allowed my wife to do something like that. I said, well, that's not the way I run my marriage. Ours is a partnership and uh, my wife is responsible for her own actions and I won't tell her what to do. And and John McMartin was a member of the National Executive as uh, the president of the state uh, movement. That sort of followed me because, of course, he was unhappy with me um, for many years after that. So, yeah, that um, it, it became increasingly tense for me in the movement, really, from before then, but from that day on especially. Yeah, well, fair enough, Shane. You needed to bring your wife into submission, brother. And <laughs> obviously, right. obviously, you weren't the head of the house. <laughs> I bought her flowers instead, which I'm sure wouldn't have, ha- wouldn't have satisfied him, but there you go. Yeah, you said well done, darling. Yeah, good job. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, co-host of the Leaving Eden podcast, and I was raised in a cult. I signed purity pledges. I cried at the altar. I went out door-to-door soul winning, and I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old. I saw it all and did it all as I grew up completely immersed, pun fully intended, in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. With my co-host Gavriel Hakoen, I unpack all of this from the hilarious to the traumatic back to the hilarious on the Leaving Eden podcast. New episodes release every Monday on all podcast streaming platforms. We recommend new listeners. Start by checking out episode 57, in which we discuss the bite model and give an overview of my personal story. Hey guys, we'd love to hear from our audience. So if you'd like to connect with I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, then visit our website, IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com or find our Linktree URL in the show notes. We also have a thriving community of listeners on Facebook who offer peer support and a shitload of funny memes and things of interest to former teenage fundies just like you. You can find us on Facebook or see the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. So this is happening for you. This is, what, 2008, somewhere around there. You're within the throes of academia. You're within, really, in the midst of that movement. You were talking about that external pressure you were getting from John McMartin and and the executive. What's happening in academia for you within that space that you would obviously assume is a is safe space for you? Is that becoming less safe? I mean, it's really interesting. Not really. I felt as an academic. You know, there wasn't, for example, many Pentecostal theologians around at the time. Um, So that gave me a stature. The Pentecostal Academy around the world was a supportive space. I got to write about Pentecostal history and I tried to sort of make the case that Pentecostalism is about empowering people on the margins. It's not a fundamentalist movement. I wrote a bit about Pentecostal hermeneutics and tried to say, you know, this 
Pentecostalism is about reading the scripture in liberative ways. It's There's no one true reading of the scripture for Pentecostals. You look at the way Pentecostals read the scripture, they're diverse and different. Um, sometimes weird, but weird is okay in, in my books. So I, I really felt like I, well, I hoped that I had a role of being able to expand the minds of students, of being to sort of, you know, maybe present an alternative vision of what Pentecostal theology and Pentecostal Bible reading could do. And I enjoyed doing that. It's, it's really interesting because all these years down the track, uh, I get ex-students stopping me in the street. In fact, it happened last week again and telling me how much difference I made to their um, experience of faith. You know, I've had people who were students and who were gay and struggling with it at the time saying I helped them accept themselves. And I, I had women um, say to me, you know, you opened my horizons to what, to the, I didn't just have to be stuck in this role of mother and supporter, but could, you know, um, exercise leadership and authority in my own right. So in some sense, I, it was a really, I, I feel privileged being able to have done that work. And during the 2000s felt pretty safe. It wasn't really until the church started to harden its views on I mean, it was always conservative on LGBT issues, but they weren't at the forefront of what the movement was talking about. And then in the mid-2000s, when the same-sex marriage debate come, came up, my position became increasingly uh, untenable. And we can talk about that later, but of course, prior to that, I then had a spinal cord injury, which changed things again for me. So, Yeah, well, that was what I wanted to ask you about next. And to use one of my corporate wank words, let's pivot. And let's talk about your injury, because that must have been a, a massive signpost in, in this journey for you. That must have been a, a massive turning point. And, and the impact of that on you and your thinking must be profound. So, so take us into that. Yeah, look, a, a spinal cord injury is, it just changes your whole life. I spent in 2010, I was with my then teenage children, um, they were at a church youth facility in Nara. The local youth group had set up a jump with a foam pit. So, you know, those foam pits they have in gymnasiums, which are meant to keep you safe, but it was badly built. Uh, it's why occupational health and safety matters. So my, t- my children were jumping and I was one of those parents who parented by play. So I jumped on the push bike, took the jump, landed upside down and knew instantly I was in serious trouble. I had uh, broken my neck. I was flown by helicopter from the south coast up to uh, Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, spent the next seven months in hospital trying to adjust my life. And, you know, when you're in hospital, hospitals suck. Try spending um, seven months there. You just can't wait to get out of there. And you're you're working, I, I guess, I think you half imagine that when you get home, Um, life will go back to normal. But of course, it's when you get home that you're suddenly confronted with the losses that you've had. And it has an impact on marriage. Uh, You know, how do you be a husband when your capacity to sort of give and take in in that marriage feels less? You always feel like you're receiving rather than giving. Uh, It impacts upon sexuality. It impacted upon my relationship with my kids. As I said, I was a guy who parented by play. And so how can I parent now. And of course, it impacted upon my faith. For It's really interesting that for many 
for a few years afterwards, um, when people would say to me, has the spinal cord injury impacted your faith? I'd say, no, no, I'd, I've done a PhD and so I'd spent all this time thinking about faith. But actually, the longer it went on, the more I realized that this experience had, yeah, had started to change my faith as well. Um, I did spend the first few years asking that standard question, why God? Um, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Not that I was good, but you, you know the basic idea, the problem of pain. I wrote theological articles about it that I had published in academic journals that I look back on now and think, yeah, but there wasn't really an answer there. It also sort of hardened my position in terms of my willingness to play the church game. You know, if you're going to survive as a theologian in a movement, you're sort of always having to be careful about what you will and won't say or what you will and won't think. And so although I was a feminist and pro-gay, I had to be careful so that I didn't damage the college that I was a part of or, or make too many ripples in what I said publicly. Or even lose your job, right? I mean, that was always a danger too. Yeah, yeah, your job was always at risk. So I could push students carefully, but I had to be very careful um, what I said publicly. So it, it, just, it meant I suddenly cared a little less about those games and was a little more direct and so maybe got myself into more trouble. So Shane, I, I guess I want to pick up on, you know, that time. And I know it's it's not a point in time, but it's several years where you, you've had your injury, you're coming to terms with it, theologically, but also as a person, as a human, as a father, as a husband, but also in the broader society. We live in a very ableist society. And I know that we've come, you know, a fair way in the last 10 to 15 years, but we're talking around 2010. So we're talking 13 years ago. What's that? What's your sense of where where you fit in society? What's your role? How has that changed? What's the impact for you deep as a person? Ah, oh, look, disability is the worst and best journey I've gone on. It's an absolute nightmare and a dream. It's ugly and beautiful. It's uh, it really. I mean, look, disability changed the way I thought about myself. I was a, a teenage fundamentalist, probably hasn't had a time, it's probably, we probably don't have the time to unpack what the meanings of disability, but things like the social model of disability or ableism, these concepts, I don't know whether you've talked about them, but the social model of disability, if you can give me just a tangent from a, for a second, it, it says we tend to think about disability as a medical problem, a problem with the person that needs to be fixed. But in fact, disability is a social problem. It's a problem with the way in which society is shaped that excludes people with bodies and minds that function and look differently. For example, I'm excluded uh, when I come to a building, uh, not because my legs don't work, but because you've got steps on the entrance. And my problem with, uh, with my spinal cord injury is, you know, I'm not trapped in my wheelchair. I'm not wheelchair bound, as people say, but I'm wheelchair free because my wheelchair enables me to get around the place, 
but it's the barriers you put in shops when you have steps there or you clog the aisles up so I can't get in and around. And this changes the way you think about yourself, about disability, and actually the way in which you think about the world, because then you start to expand your horizons beyond disability and you you realise that actually so much of our society is shaped to exclude people on the margins. And, uh, and that's why I think disability theology, you know, it's about reclaiming pride in this thing that we're supposed to be shameful about. And so, you know, ableism is, you know, ableism like racism, racism is, is the idea that people with disability are less than, different, incapable, a burden. And we turn that on its head and we say, no, no, to be a disabled person is to exercise pride in the fact that we're navigating this world that doesn't want us. And actually, uh, we're extremely capable. And so disability pride aligns itself with, um, with other marginalised groups. So I don't think you can, you can do disability inclusion without doing queer inclusion. Because again, this is another group of people who are on the margins of society and on the margins of the church and who have had to say, no, um, I'm not ashamed of being queer, of being gay, of being transgender, but I'm proud of who I am. And together, this collective pride uh, enables us to stand together and change society, change the church, change the way people think. And uh, so I guess, yeah, that, that's why my sort of position on inclusion and whether that's disabled inclusion or, fem- or, or female inclusion in the church or queer inclusion in the church goes together and I do start to become much more critical of Christianity, not just Pentecostal Christianity, but mainstream Christianity, Catholic Christianity and, and Christian teaching as a whole, which often has sort of shame, m- marginalising shame right at the centre of so much of really just orthodox Christian teaching and ethics. So yeah, disability thinking really changed the way I thought about myself brought me into contact with really amazing groups of people. I have so many, you know, my I've got friends who are blind and deaf and have intellectual disability and cerebral palsy, and it's an amazing, rich, diverse community. So I'm really stoked to have experienced it, even though quadriplegia is hard to live with. Even now as I'm doing this podcast, I'm stuck in bed with a pressure sore, and I've been here for the last few days, and it's killing me, I wish. I didn't have a spinal cord injury, and yet I'm so glad that I do. What do you do with that? You're experiencing this change and this broadening because of your disability. But how did that fit the context of the church at the time? What walls did you hit? What surprises, you know, what, what were the positives as well? Were, were, there, were there things and people that surprised you that were just wonderful? And so tell us the good and the bad, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Church was fantastic during my spinal cord injury. And the college that I worked out, uh, they were just generous and kind. And, you know, I spent seven months in hospital and I was visited every week by the principal of my colleague, uh, college. Uh, my PhD supervisor um, uh, also visited me. We had deep conversations about God and faith. And I, I was fortunate that I could go back to work and one of the interesting things, of course, I think theology at its best is really an explanation, uh, an exploration of the problem of pain, you know, of, of, gee, 
where is the divine in the midst of the shittiness and hardship of life? And so interestingly, I, I think I'm one of the few professions where spinal cord injury was an asset to my job because I'd experienced a sort of a hardship that, you know, I was a well-educated, white, 39-year-old, privileged male, highly educated and uh, independent male, and then suddenly had to deal with, you know, dependency, difficulty. You know, I had people, and I still do, you know, I've got people I can't uh, go to the shower. I need people getting me out of bed and dressing me and showering me and all the sort of everyday things that are really, in a sense, humiliating that um, that is independent men we're not used to. I think theology is at its riches, richest when it's thinking about the hardship of life. And so in some sense, I went back to work and that became one of the places in which I was able to find joy and freedom in the midst of the losses that I had to deal with and thinking about theology and disability. It's a really rich field. It's the, I, I'm an ex-theologian now, but it's the one field in which I still do play around in because I think, you know, to think about the disabled Christ, for example, what does it mean to say that Christ had wounds in his hands and feet? One of my favourite disability theologians, Nancy Iseland, imagined, you know, you'll, you'll hear African-American theologians talk about the black Christ or, uh, you know, what's the disabled Christ? Imagine Christ in a sip and puff wheelchair, for example. And so there's really rich um, reflections to say, what does the gospel look like if we imagine God taking on the disabled life? And you, you don't have to be a fundamentalist or even to know whether you believe in God to, to have these rich theological explorations. And I think that's what, when theology can it can be at its best. It doesn't require dogmatic fixed belief. You can you can be a, an uncertain theologian, but explore life and its meanings and and spirituality. So so disability did that for me in the church, and and really disability in the church was never was was ultimately not what separated me from Christianity. It was it was actually um, in a sense I became harder to get rid of because I had this disability. And so it actually gave me a little bit of freedom because I could be a bit more blunt and a bit more straightforward about all my theological positions because, hey, I'm this guy in this wheelchair and you know we've got to be careful <laughs> what we do and say with him, don't we? So um, to some degree, it gave me some freedom. And really, my crisis with Christianity was more on my LGBT stand rather than my disability um, positions. So let's talk about that then, Shane. Let's talk about leaving, leaving fundamentalism. The same-sex marriage debate um, hardened the church's position. And so in 2016, I was the, the dean at the place I was working at the time decided that I was no longer allowed to teach undergraduate students. And, and look, it's so funny. I can... I can truth be told, I can almost understand it now in retrospect. I think it's to their loss. I think I think a, a, a Christianity, a Pentecostal Christianity that's willing to and that's able to engage with diverse opinions, even ones they don't agree with, agree with. I feel like I helped students sustain faith in the modern world because I gave them an open horizon. They weren't sort of forced with the choice that you had, Brian, which is between a fundamentalist faith or no faith. 
So I feel like and believe my role was helping students navigate and sustain a more open faith in the modern world. But the problem was that um, the same-sex marriage debates hardened Christianity's position on these topics, and I was felt to be dangerous. And hey, I was because it, it, you know it wasn't just that I was pro-gay, but I was pushing people about conservative readings of the scriptures, and um, you know the the, the pro-gay position is also expanding your horizons about your attitudes to the way in which you interpret the Bible, your attitudes to heaven and hell, you know. Um, I, I'd become a universalist a while before. And uh, and so, look, I... Oh, that was, that was the end of you, Shane. <laughs> if you're a universalist, what the hell are you doing in an AOG Bible college? <laughs> yeah, look, um, so, look, I do get why... I was banned from teaching. And so I went through a two-year sort of academic freedom fight. It was difficult and traumatic. And I ended up, I wasn't sacked. I ended up uh, leaving, which was a really difficult time for me, to be honest. Theology jobs narrow your opportunity. There is, especially in churches that are, you know, in Sydney anyway, uh, that are conservative. There's very few non-conservative churches in Sydney. And, you know, I'd spent two decades as a theologian. What job do I get? I went nine months without a job. Fortunately, disability became my avenue back into into the academy. And so the University of Sydney and then the Royal Commission, I ended up getting work. But it was, it was a, a time of sort of existential crisis for me, quite a bit of trauma and quite a bit of anger, to be frank, at the church that I struggled with it. At the time, I also, uh, when I went to Sydney University, I was supervising the PhD of a guy called Joel Hollier, who was interviewing evangelical Pentecostals who had come out in Pentecostal Christianity. So he had he'd studied, I don't know, 25 or 30, the experience of all of these young people who'd come out and experienced all sort of trauma and psychological distress in that process. So my own experience of coming out and then supervising Joel um, really separated me from Christianity. In retrospect, it's freed me up. I mean, gosh, the idea now of going, I will never work for a Christian organisation where where you're so constrained by what you can and can't say. Here, I mean, the, the irony, isn't it? Here is Christianity is supposed to be about the pursuit of, you know, beauty, truth and goodness. And yet they define truth in such narrow ways that they force you in very ugly, powerful ways um, they they end up with unethical positions. They don't allow you to investigate truth, and so I feel really free being out from the constraints of Christian dogmatism, and won't go back. And one thing I want to pick up on because I, I'm sort of it's bouncing around my head. You're still a Pentecostal academic, but you've become a universalist. Was there a bit of cognitive dissonance there for you to be able to maintain that life because? Pentecostalism, as we know, has one of the narrowest views of who's in and who's out, ultimately, of the you know, the afterlife. How does that work, being a universalist Pentecostal academic? Look, I guess I don't completely agree with you. I think Pentecostalism is an extremely diverse movement and a spiritual movement. So I actually think one of the great 
possibilities for Pentecostalism is doctrinal change. You know, when you think about early Pentecostalism, they do things that none of the rest of the church allow them to do. And so I feel, or I hoped, that Pentecostal openness to the new move of the Spirit uh, allowed doctrinal change, and it had done it. It had had allowed them to accept women. You know, there is some pretty good, um, I, I know a Pentecostal, Queer church uh, in Sydney, Crave Church, for example. So I guess that was my hope. And so I was always arguing that Pentecostalism was about spirituality, not fixed doctrinal positions. Of course, I was utterly naive in that. Um, So, um, and probably outside, having spent now quite a long time outside, I can see that naivety. But that was what I was telling myself at the time. <laughs> we we all tell ourselves things to get ourselves through, Shane, and, that, and that's okay. I'm not being critical. I was being um, curious, I guess, yeah. around it. So I guess we want to pick up because we want to make sure that we spend some time focusing on this. You talked before about your daughter transitioning. You you talked about your acceptance, embracing and advocacy for the LGBT community. How did that play out? I mean, you were saying ultimately that's the thing that had you booted. Yep. What happened there? Talk us through some of that stuff. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I guess the first point to ask, which I asked myself is why did I stay in for so long when my positions were like that? I had some really great friends who who I would talk to outside of Christianity. So Anthony Van Brown, who I mentioned, a guy called Carl Hand, who, and I would ring them up regularly and I'd say, oh, gosh, am I betraying LGBTQI people by staying here? And we'd talk it through and we realised, well, no, because there is... You know, there's so many quality young people who need to have their minds opened to different possibilities. Um, And so we'd navigate staying in there. And look, they were always very kind to me. They said, we don't require you to leave to stand up for LGBT uh, people. But I don't know. I still wonder, looking back, was I compromising for the sake of my job? I just, I can't speak to that. The only thing I can say is I have lots of people who come to me now thankful for my teaching, and I don't get that anymore because I don't have any more input into those students. So, so that's my self-justification. The crisis that I had, um, which which again wasn't to do with the college, it was to do with the movement. It was the movement pushing me out, not the college. Um, the first thing I did was joined a gay Mardi Gras march because um, I was invited to speak at the um, at a conference of um, gay Christians, and oh my. God, it was seriously one of the best experiences of my life. This is the space that Christianity tells you is the evilest in the world. You know, this is the, the space that God hates that we should be protesting because, you know, there's so much debauchery and horror. And here I was uh, in the marshalling area before, surrounded by trans women and uh, gay, lesbian people, by Furbies. I mean, this is a strange community, by people. And yet they they see my Christian shirt on and they come up and they'd give us cuddles. They'd welcome you. It was, it was the most welcoming space, inclusive, diverse space I've ever been in. Weirdly, I feel like the gay Mardi Gras was what Christianity should be. And so uh, one of my first sort of experiences outside was 
with the gay Mardi Gras. And I, I just loved it. But what's really interesting about my career prior to that as an ally to, say, feminist women and to LGBTQI people was that I was straight and had no real direct connection to either of those communities. And then quite a bit later, so maybe two or three years ago now, my then oldest child came and said to me, to Ellie and I, hey, um, I've been struggling with, um, you know, I've been transgender my whole life and I'm transitioning, which was sort of a shock and sort of not. Because what's what when she then did that, what became apparent was that actually the signs were there the whole time. And what was actually quite difficult was that we'd responded to them in some traumatic ways, ways that had caused trauma. So um, when I'd first had my injury, for example, Jem was, her name then was Jeremy. We used to call him Jem for short, which is interesting because when she transitioned, Jem worked as a feminine name and so still now calls herself Jem or Gemma. She, rec- she came to us and said, well, do you remember you were, I was in hospital and we found female underwear in her drawer and she'd spent her entire Christ, uh, Christmas money on buying all of this female underwear and we'd found it. And even though I was pro already pro-gay at that time, I just, you know, this was 10 years ago now, I we didn't know enough or we didn't know much about the transgender experience. And so at the time we just assumed that this was some sort of sexual fetish that was unhealthy and so we took the underwear off her and said look we don't think this is a good habit and to some degree that reinforced um, the shame that was already in her mind about her desire to her feeling that she wanted to be a woman so it was really interesting then 10 years or you know whatever how I don't know how long it was later that she came to us and sat us down and said this is what's happened and it was just in some ways beautiful. We, could, we were able to be completely accepting. And uh, we, we actually, interestingly, have podcasted some of this journey. I, I think you might have seen the podcast. We are nowhere near as organized and diligent and have the audience you do. It's an ad hoc podcast that we just do together. I think it's called The Change Podcast. You can probably find it online where we've sort of documented uh, her transition together and uh, over... Christmas, just before Christmas, we haven't yet done this podcast. She actually had uh, surgery, so um, gender uh, realignment surgery, and is sort of right now sort of dealing with the recovery of that. So it's been a really fascinating journey, and it's, I don't know, do you call that providence? I don't, I don't know that I believe in providence, but after being an ally and actually before, you know, even losing my job on and my career, not just my job, on uh, an LGBT issue. My daughter uh, ends up being transgender. So, yeah, life takes you in strange, circuitous and sometimes beautiful trajectories, doesn't it? Shane, do your kids have a faith? No. We did try and encourage an open faith. They went to a Christian school. You know, we would try and say, hey, Christianity doesn't have to be X, but you know the, their Christian school was anti-evolution, um, anti-gay, and pretty fundamentalist. Even though legally Christian schools aren't allowed to be that, 
they sort of are under the surface. And so they rejected the form of Christianity that was around them. And so we were we were sort of unable to sustain that more open faith. And I do find often a rejection of conservatism does lead to a rejection of Christianity, as you guys know. Um, I love my kids and they're you, you raise your kids, you don't raise your kids to be Christian. You raise your kids to be moral agents who can take responsibility of their own life and sometimes in directions that you might not have chosen yourself. And what's really great as a parent of young people is that they reach a certain age where they push your ethics and your horizons. And that's been the case with my kids. And and you're a universalist anyway, Shane, so all good, all good. I thought it was interesting that you said, we told them that Christianity doesn't have to be X, and yet every representation or presentation to them in their lives was was X. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they didn't believe me because of that. Yeah, and um, I guess that's a that's an indictment on Christianity. It it doesn't have to be this, but pretty well everywhere it is, and publicly it certainly is. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, here they are going to a Christian school with all of these boundaries and really narrow thinking. And at home, they haven't got that. They've got a universalist dad. They've got someone who's gay affirming. They've they've got someone who is is feminist. I mean, you've confused the hell out of them, Shane. Look what you've done. Yeah, definitely my fault. Uh, and look, the truth is, people would uh, do judge you for that, don't you? The the, the one of the judgments you get from conservatives is you failed as a parent um, when you don't raise kids uh, in the faith. And I'm proud of my kids, but not because of the way I raised them. I think parenting is is sheer luck. Um, I don't claim credit for the good people they've turned out to be. Yeah, they're good people in spite of us. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So tell us, Shane, because I know this is going to be a question that rattles around in people's minds, especially in our audience's mind. And it's, I don't know, it's its a question that's awkward to ask because we, we don't want to be, you know, throwing labels, et cetera. But where do you sit now? What do you believe? If you were to define yourself, if you were to wear a label or if you were to even reject certain labels, if that's how you identify, where do you sit with your faith now? Maybe that depends which day you ask me, which doesn't sound very faithful, does it? Um, look, uh, I, I'm I'm still a Christian, but I get embarrassed to say that because I think that's embarrassing, unfortunately, um, for the same reasons my kids were there. Um, but I am sometimes might be an agnostic Christian in that I don't have certainty. I think there is a depth of riches in Christian faith which can help me navigate the difficulties of life you know life is about finding meaning and spirituality and beauty and goodness and christianity has helped me to do that i have uh, a sense of the divine of god but at the same time i am extremely critical of some pretty core christian beliefs you know i think sacrificial atonement is a problem and the consequences of of anthropology or the theology of humankind as being depraved is extremely problematic. I guess I align myself as sort of a, a left-wing, open-minded Christian who sees beauty in the tradition, who owns the who owns the tradition as part of my history, 
And so part of my identity, it's part of who I am. It's formed me as a person and I can't let go of that now. Yeah, and like I think the the Jesus story for all of its limits, Jesus is a radical human who I think we can learn a lot from. Um, and if Jesus represents God and a vision of God on the earth, I think that is a pretty good vision of God potentially depending upon how you interpret those stories. So is that an answer? No, that, that's a good answer, Shane. And you know what? If the answer changes next week, you're there with most of us who, who've flip-flop about on, on this one, and, and that's totally okay. Um, I, I do want to also just celebrate the fact that you're able to bring your academic background, but also your experience as someone with quadriplegia into the Royal Commission um, into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation against people with a disability. It's an incredibly important thing. This is a field that I've, I've also worked in professionally as a social worker as well. So I always really love when people can bring their experience into this and shape and change broader society through it. You're working with the research team there. What, what's that look like and, and where do you see the Royal Commission heading? What's, what's going to be the impact for people living with a disability? Oh, gosh, that is a hard question. Um, I'm actually in the policy branch at the moment. And uh, I mean, to some degree, I have to be slightly careful what I say because I'm not a commissioner and I, I work inside the Royal Commission. But I think I can say that uh, Australia and globally, most human societies have pretty overwhelmingly negative attitudes to people with disability. And by negative attitudes, I don't mean that people, you know, hate people with disability, but they're negative. It's more the implicit assumptions rather than explicit hate. Oh, there is some of that, you know, um, the Royal Commission has, un has unearthed some pretty horrible things that short-statured people have to deal with, for example, when they go down the street or, you know, assumptions about, um, about people with intellectual disability. So there is some really blatant um, negative attitudes, but it's more those implicit understandings that assume that people with disability are incapable, a burden, and need to be segregated and sequestered away from society in institutions where they're under the control of others. And so, look, I, I'm hoping that there is sort of a transition that instead of disability policy being about powerful politicians and bureaucrats and academics sort of controlling the lives of people with disability, that there's a transfer and a transition of power so that um, people with disability are empowered to shape the horizons of their own future, exercise choice and autonomy for themselves. I think there's a lot to be learned from First Nations sovereignty. You know, we um, historically, uh, White Australia has said, what can we do to help bring people with disability out of poverty instead of saying, how can we empower um, First Nations people to, to free themselves from the effects of colonialism? And I think that same sort of transition in First Nation, in disability policy is necessary. So uh, help people with disability be empowered to choose for themselves their own future. Hey, that would be a good way of thinking about what faith should be about. Instead of fundamentalist, powerful pastors telling people how to live, why not have a faith that empowers people to, um, to decide for themselves what God and life is about. So there you go. Well, that's, that's radical. We'll have to 
we'll have to crucify him, Brian. That's that's some pretty radical thinking there. <laughs> and 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 in that model, there is no room for global senior pastors. So I don't see that being a model that can be picked up. I mean, how do you dominate the world with that sort of model, Shane? God, this is why you're a universalist. <laughs> Indeed. One of the questions that Brian likes to ask, and forgive me, Brian, but I'm going to ask it on your behalf. Shane, what's the good? Your time as a fundamentalist, experiencing the fundamentalist church, being a part of it, you know, obviously ultimately being ejected, even though you ultimately did choose to walk away. What, what are the good things that you look back on and say, this is valuable? Yeah, look, I mean, life is ultimately about the meaning you find in it and the people that you meet. And so, look, I have had, I'm 52 years old, turning 53 this year. I've had a life of rich exploration of meaning and spirituality and encountering great people around the world. And, you know, Pentecostal Christianity was a big part of that. Disability is another part of that. So you find that in different places, meaning and relationships. And there is great people in Pentecostalism for all the power, the power hungry capitalist church pastors that are out there. There's another 99 good person looking for God, trying to be kind to their neighbor. And I've encountered a lot of those people. That's, that is a, a good spin on it, Shane. And it's great that you can maintain that. I always try and pull the good out of it, even though some of the things that have happened to us have been absolutely shit soup. There's always the good in it that you can pull out. <laughs> shit soup? That doesn't sound very appetising, Brian. That's right. That's it, because it's not. It's do, you have that, do you have that with a shit sandwich? I do have it with a shit sandwich and shit on a stick. Remember, <laughs> this is this is very much an Australian thing for our international listeners. Yeah, it, it was everything. Everything goes with shit in it, Australia. It, it does. And if you had sarcastic parents like mine, you would go, "What's for dinner tonight?" Shit on a stick, and <laughs> they would just really try and piss you off. And they they did a great job of it. Well, Vegemite on toast is shit on a shingle, right? Oh, I love it. Can I comment on that because? You know, life is a shit is a shit soup, and actually, it's in the shit that you find its deepest meaning. And you know, we spend all of our lives trying to avoid the shit, and so we could. Who would go through these things? But it's actually in the midst of the shit that you discover that people are kind and generous, and that you pursue new opportunities and new meaning. If we could, you know, we look forward. We say, how can I avoid all the pain and all the hardship and all the death and all the loss? But weirdly, that's when life is also at its richest. That's the ambiguity. So the shit in life is also the good in life. It, it is. Completely agree, Shane. It, it is right. Now, Shane, how do we connect people in with you? You've obviously, you've got your website, shaneclifton.com. Other places, I know people can sign up to the newsletter. I'm signed up to your newsletter. I can read your blog in there. can connect with some of your podcasts and episodes that you, you've done there. What are other ways they can connect with you? Listen to the podcast, hear Gem's story. I'm not really living a public life at the moment, and I'm quite enjoying that. So I don't sort of, yeah, one of the great things is I don't have to promote myself or I can live a quiet life where I do my thing. If you want to contact me, maybe you can, but yeah, don't bother. I don't have that much to say to you. Live your own life. You don't need to contact me to um, live it. That's that's a fair call. Yeah, and you can come right here too. 
and hear a synopsis of your life and connect that way as well. That's right. So how do we contact with Shane? You don't. (laughs) (laughs) That was like Josie McSkimming. Remember Josie McSkimming said, she said, uh, you know, people want to write to me or or call me and talk. I don't, she said. (laughs) So yeah, for sure, man, it's your life. But there there is a website and we will make sure that we put that into our show notes. I want to thank you so much for being a part of this, Shane. I don't know if you were in any way apprehensive that you thought we were going to – I don't know, make you delve deeper into the shit soup of what was your Pentecostal experience. I hope we've been gentle enough and that you see that I was a teenage fundamentalist podcast is whilst we love to tear down, we also like to build up. And so thank you for coming along and uh, telling your story. I think it's been really valuable. My great pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Thanks, Shane. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, And the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.